Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Dr. Gavriel Rosenfeld. Dr. Rosenfeld is president of the Center for Jewish History in New York City and also serves as professor of history at Fairfield University. Professor Rosenfeld received his BA in history and Judaic studies from Brown University and his PhD in history from UCLA. Professor Rosenfeld's area of specialization include the history of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, memory studies, and counterfactual history. Professor Rosenfeld has authored and edited, edited numerous books, including, but not limited to, Fascism in America, Past and Present, The Fourth Reich, The Specter of Nazism from World War II to the Present, Pi Hitler, How the Nazi Past is Being Normalized in Contemporary Culture, Building After Auschwitz, Jewish Architecture and the Memory of the Holocaust, Munich and Memory. And today we'll be discussing the absolutely fascinating what-ifs of Jewish history from Abraham to Zionism. It is a, um, a page-turner, a collection of essays by a group of eminent historians edited by Dr. Rosenfeld with one of his essays included as well and uh, urge all our viewers and listeners, as I did, to simply go on to Amazon, click of a button, free delivery, anywhere in the world. Um, again, Dr. Rosenfeld, Professor Rosenfeld, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ari. Okay. Um, just to get started, what exactly is the study of counterfactual history, and how is it different from alternative history? So it's a good question. Um, counterfactual history and alternate history are certainly cousins. Uh, I like to think about uh, alternate history as a little bit um, of a subgenre within the larger field that we call counterfactual history, but both of them certainly uh, focus on the question of what ifs, what ifs in history. And anyone who engages in wondering what if about the past is essentially trying to figure out how history might have been different if certain events had transpired uh, otherwise. Um, alternate history tends to explore those what-if questions in literary fashion, in the form of novels or short stories or films, or as we see increasingly in our pop culture media landscape streaming series, uh, many examples of which I can get into later. Uh, counterfactual history is more, um, say, what journalists or historians or social scientists would uh, employ when they try and figure out causation. Uh, and trying to determine how things might have unfolded differently, um, or maybe what the factors that ended up um, causing certain events uh, should be uh, understood as um, by asking questions about how they might have unfolded differently. Uh, counterfactual history, to put it very simply, uh, is sort of the conceptual theoretical uh, version of what-ifs, and alternate history is the more literary, dramatic, narrative-based form. Okay. Um... The position, which obviously you do not take, the arguments against um, counterfactual history as historical scholarship. What what are those arguments? Why do some historians say would have, could have, should have, not history? Yeah, no, this is the classic objection to counterfactual thought especially in the field of history. And the, the simple reason is it's empirically, empirically unverifiable. Um, how do you prove that um, if the United States Air Force 
hadn't dropped the bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945, that World War II wouldn't have ended in the Pacific right then and there. Um, clearly, there have been people who have found fault with the, those two uh, aerial attacks on those two Japanese cities by saying, if only they hadn't been dropped, and if only America, the United States, had, uh, let's say, pursued a naval invasion of the Japanese islands, then we could have avoided this human calamity. Um, well, you know, how do, how do you how do you arrive at a conclusion one way or the other? Um, because it's always going to be speculative, the question about how we wonder what if. Um, any historian who uh, believes that history is about empirical proof and using archival sources to show what did happen shouldn't waste their time dealing with what might have happened. The fact of the matter is, however, though, is that every single historian since Herodotus uh, in the Greco-Roman tradition, and for that matter, uh, the authors of the Hebrew Bible, you can even uh, and and other Near Eastern civilizations have used what ifs in their historical chronicles, their historical narratives. So it is a time-honored uh, tradition, uh, certainly in the history of the West. Uh, and in one of my uh, recently completed book manuscripts that I'm hoping will you know be published uh, within the next year or so, uh, I actually trace back um, the origins of counterfactual thinking in the Western world. And in the actual conclusion and epilogue to the book, start offering reflections about non-Western cultures, whether Islam or ancient uh, India or China, whether um, this what-if thought process is actually an innate human tendency, uh, and therefore we shouldn't be disparaging it, as is so often the case. Okay. So, so you know, obviously, you, you've, you've touched upon this already. So, so what what are the pros for the for counterfactual? scholarship and why should it fit into historical scholarship understand that the argument that it's innate um we do this all the time in our lives what if i had mm -hmm. whatever don't even want to go down that path but well, you know. like what if i had taken a different job or gone to a different university or not met right. the spouse that i ended up marrying and it's fascinating. Just I, I, didn't, to, I didn't want to say that. I didn't want to say well, that. No, just That's to interject one. at this point, the real interesting question is why do we wonder about those things? Why do we ask those questions at certain points in our lives? Um, what I've basically concluded, and there's plenty of social scientists who have done the same thing, is that all counterfactual reflection is a, is a reflection of deeper human emotions, the two most important being regret and relief. So if you have regrets about where your life is at in the present day moment, I mean, take the conflict in the state of Israel today, the civil conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian problem. Um, you know, would we be able to figure out what we should have done decades ago to avoid either the domestic turmoil or the foreign policy turmoil? A lot of people have regrets about the state of things today at the national level. And, you know, if you just got fired from your job and you're not happy about your job prospects going forward, you might have wished you did a different major in college or you and I will both spare ourselves any reflections about spousal relationships. But, you know, at low points, we wonder what if, because we have regret. And by the same token, if we're grateful for having escaped, you know, a close call, we'll imagine how much worse things might have been uh, to kind of underscore how how grateful we are uh, in the here and now. So so how how is this different from analyzing, let's say, the decision to drop the, the nuclear bombs uh, on Japan, how is this different from analyzing what those decision makers were 
grappling with. What, they they were grappling with what ifs. If if we bomb it, this is a consequence. If we don't bomb it, this might be the consequence. Is is that part of counterfactual um, his, historical scholarship, or is that just looking at actual history and archives? Is it different? Well, it is both. There have been plenty of historians who have said we can reconstruct the options that people had when they were making pivotal decisions. The decision to go to war or not go to war is, you know, one of the most important. Um, but in all in all truth, um, what the eminent historian Hugh Trevor Roper said back in the early 80s, and he was echoing Isaiah Berlin from the late 1950s, is that history is not what happened. History is what happened in the context of what might have happened. And so anytime a historical decision maker, whether it's FDR, whether it's Theodore Herzl, whatever, um, you know, when they decide to do something, it's not preordained that that's what they're going to do. They have many, many ways of choosing otherwise, just as we as individuals can make our choices uh, as we see fit. And of course, as Mark said, we don't always make choices under circumstances of our own choosing, but we still would love to preserve uh, you know, a sense that we have free will. Um, we also have structural determinants that shape how we behave. But it's the interplay between those two things that counterfactual history can oftentimes uh, make very, very clear. So, um, you know, should the Allies, should France and England have decided to teach Hitler a lesson when he remilitarized the Rhineland in 1936? Had they done so with more aggressive response instead of with appeasement, maybe he would have suffered a humiliating defeat. Maybe World War II would have been uh, preempted then and there. Um, so the question of what lessons we learn from the past is always going to be done in the context of how we might have been able to act otherwise. Um, what What is um, your thesis uh, behind uh, the study of counterfactual history um, in Jewish history. Um, I, I think you write number one, it hasn't been explored enough. And obviously this book and other works that you're doing are now answering that or dealing with that. Why specifically Jewish history as, as a counterfactual scholarship? Sure. So from an autobiographical perspective, um, I've long been fascinated both with European and Jewish history and oftentimes European Jewish history together. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a historian of the Nazi experience, um, so I'm primarily a German historian, but I've always been, uh, as you could, as you mentioned, with my undergraduate uh, major as a Jewish studies uh, scholar, which I continued in graduate school, I've always tried to see where the links uh, exist between Western history and Jewish history. Um, and when I got interested in counterfactual history, it was outside of a Jewish context, the truth of the matter is, is that I first was exposed to it when I was researching um, actually my undergraduate thesis on the American government's re-education program and denazification program in Germany after World War II. And I came across, when I was doing archival research in the uh, papers of one of the American military government's re-education directors, a man by the name of Herman B. Wells, I came across a uh, 1960 uh, Look Magazine story written by the famous historian William Shire was entitled, What If the Nazis Had Won World War II? I'd never heard of such a thing. Um, turns out, of course, this is the most popular theme in the entire field of counterfactual history. And so it led me to wonder, well, why is a historian who wrote the best-selling work of history ever written, The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich, why is he doing something that doesn't look like history? 
turns out um, this nightmare of a Nazi victory in World War II was hardly only uh, shared by Shire. It was shared by countless millions of people, so much so that there have been hundreds of essays and films and plays and novels written on this topic. Um, and that was a phenomenon in and of itself. And it alerted me to the fact that there is this thing that exists in the world called counterfactual history. And I realized that nobody had yet written the history of that field. And as someone who's very interested in Jewish history, I was especially struck by the fact that Jewish historians hadn't really spent much time delving into this topic whatsoever. And when I thought about um, one of the remarks that my good friend and colleague, Professor David Myers at UCLA, uh, mentioned to me was that, which is that Jewish historians historically were late adapters in the sense that um, they followed, when secular historiography emerged in the 19th century, they followed the path of their German and French and British counterparts, but they were usually a generation late to the game. Um, and so I asked myself, well, why are all these historians starting in the 1990s writing about counterfactual history? And I don't see any Jewish historians doing it. So the collected essays, the collection of essays was an effort to try and um, bring some of the eminent scholars in the field to this game, if you want to call it a game, uh, better late than never, and also in the process to ask the question, why uh, have Jewish scholars been reluctant to reflect counterfactually? And what I, you know, tried to at least um, discuss in the introduction to the book is that there is a religious tradition uh, in Jewish thought that might inhibit wondering what if. Uh, that tradition, of course, believes that Jewish history has long been imprinted by a divine uh, guidance system, if you will, it's a deterministic teleological view of history that sees uh, God's will in all the events experienced by the Jewish people. Um, and if that is in fact the case, uh, if there's a divine direction to history, well then it would be almost be sacrilegious to wonder how it might have been different because it had to be the way it was. Now, there's all kinds of things that maybe you and I can talk about with regard to the role of religious doctrine in encouraging or discouraging civilizations from wondering what if, but at least the hypothesis was until the modern era uh, and the secularization of historical thought, um, you know, Jews weren't at all inclined to think in these terms. That's an interesting point, you know, when keeping in mind that the fundamental pillar of Jewish faith is free will. And, and so one can look at the overall picture and say, okay, there's maybe a, a pathway um, of history and the guiding hand of, of, of God in history, but fundamentally free will exists. And, and I think you have examples of, of it, um, it during the, um, the second temple time, if I remember correctly, when uh, the great leader Yochanan ben Zakkai met with Vespasian and asked for three things from the Talmud, relays a story that you know some of his colleagues said well why didn't you ask for four five six and seven why didn't you ask for eight so it, it perhaps is part of the tradition of jewish history is, is that your contention um, well I, I guess there's several things one is if you if you want to document how widespread or how uncommon counterfactual thought was in any civilization's text you have to first of all know those texts backward and forward and be able to find where um, those counterfactual expressions appear. So, for example, um, obviously didn't go through the five books of Moses from page one to page whatever and, and, and read every single sentence to see where are their formulations, modal or, you know, um, contingent formulations like would have, should have, might have, could have, if only, and so forth. 
Um, what, thank God, digital technologies allowed us to do is to look up those formulations uh, in translated form. And in the research that I was just conducting over the last several years on the great classics of the Western canon, whether it's the Prince by Machiavelli or whether it's Petrarch's, you know, ruminations in the Renaissance or the writings of Augustine, you know, I'm always, by definition, looking at those in translation and seeing how, um, you know, uh, counterfactual formulations might be articulated. But at least in the five books of the Hebrew Bible, uh, and I didn't really go into Psalms that much or Chronicles, but um, it's very uh, seldom that you see what ifs appearing. Now, of course, the, the most famous are uh, the first where the people of Israel are, you know, wandering in the desert after having escaped uh, from Egyptian slavery, and they're lamenting after it's hard for them to come by food. You know, why did we leave Egypt? If only we had stayed, and then we could have been eating meat left and right. And that's, you know, a very classic formulation, which actually appears in Numbers as well, not only in Exodus. Um, but it's a sign that, at this point, as I say in the introduction, the Jewish people are crouching, they're grouchy, they're not happy in the moment, that's to say they have regrets about having left Egypt. And of course, the function of this uh, passage is to underscore their lack of gratitude, their lack of faith. And uh, the authors of the Hebrew Bible, of course, wanted to uh, implore the people then and readers in the present to have faith uh, in divine mercy and divine salvation. Um, and so, yes, of course, you'll see counterfactual expressions be used for didactic and religious purposes. Um, but they're few and far between, at least if you compare those, uh, the number in the uh, Hebrew Bible or in the New Testament, for that matter, with the abundant number in ancient Greek and Roman texts. And here I'm thinking about the texts of Herodotus and Thucydides and Polybius and Livy and Tacitus. Um, the, long, the long and short is that the Greeks and Romans wrote secular historiography in ways that the uh, early Christians and ancient Israelites didn't. And so those historical traditions were much more deterministic, uh, whereas the ancient Greek and Roman texts, um, because while they were obviously religious civilizations, they were polytheistic, and there was no direction to history in a sense of any uh, prophetic end destination. It was chaos. It was multiple gods fighting among themselves all the time. And uh, because of that, there was a greater readiness, at least this is my argument, within that cultural uh, mindset among ancient Greeks and Romans to ask those kinds of counterfactual questions. What, what if, you know, we, when we were battling the Persians or when the Athenians were battling the Spartans, we had decided otherwise, you know, things could have been very different. Okay. Um, let, let's perhaps get to some examples and, and uh, essays. And uh, I just picked a few and please feel free to, to add to it. Um, I started at a later period in history. I kind of skipped over the, uh, the, the early Jewish history. Um, Russian Jewry. What, what if Russian Jewry had not been confined to the pale of settlement? What if? If you can just give a little background as to right. the pale. So, so just to be clear to your, your listeners or viewers, the um, all the 16 essays in the volume were, quote-unquote, commissioned by uh, friends and colleagues uh, of mine, uh, Jeff Eidlinger, um, who's a good friend at the University of Michigan and a historian of Eastern European uh, Jewry. Uh, I asked him to reflect on, well, how Eastern European Jewish history would have been different if the Pale of Settlement had never been brought to existence by Catherine the Great. Um, obviously, one way that he approached this, uh, and of course, I should just 
uh, provide the disclaimer that his his perspective on his own work uh, would probably be more thorough and nuanced than my uh, perspective as the editor. But the gist of his argument is that if the um, partitions of Poland had never taken place in the 1770s through 1790s, and if Poland had remained uh, an intact state and not fallen under Russian domination in the late 18th century, it's entirely possible that Jewish communal autonomy, such as it had existed in Poland for centuries, um, as you know, a haven for European Jews who had been expelled from Western Europe in the Middle Ages, um, that autonomy would have continued. And in all likelihood, some of the um, insular tendencies of Polish Jews would have persisted so that in a memorable uh, comparison, Jeff says uh, that there would today be um, a lot of Orthodox Jews living in Poland, like the Amish live in eastern Pennsylvania, um, very much removed, apart from the modern world, preserved, having preserved their traditions, not having been subjected to the forces of assimilation and, the, and, and so forth. Um, you know, we all know that in the 16th and 17th centuries, there was tremendous uh, religious and civic autonomy um, that the Jewish communities of Poland enjoyed. Maybe that would have persisted uninterrupted. Um, at the same time, he also posits the possibility that a different direction might have uh, unfolded, uh, a different path might have unfolded, whereby uh, if the Russian Tsar Alexander I had actually been able to see through his, I think it was, it was 1804 uh, edict for um, encouraging Jewish assimilation, that um, there would have been incentives put in place and other state policies that would have led to a much more rapid process of assimilation of the otherwise fairly traditional Jewish communities of Eastern Europe, uh, and some of the people who later became um, famous or infamous in Jewish and Western history, like Leon Trotsky, they wouldn't have gone into radical politics. They would have become oil barons. They would have become, you know, captains of industry. And so you would have seen uh, not so much an Amishization, if you will, of Jewish life, but a radical assimilation taking place. And it's not obviously that one of those two scenarios is more likely than the other, uh, but it is the case that written by uh, a scholar with tremendous expertise in the field, it's that kind of rumination, that kind of speculation that at least we as readers, as lay people, should take seriously uh, because those speculative claims are made from a very informed perspective. Um, and one could say perhaps that neither of these two scenarios are history, but what they allow us to do is compare what we know did happen with what might have happened and to derive meaning from the clash of those two narratives. And, and does he extend that down in history? Does he does he then make the argument that um, you don't have a pale, you have an assimilated Russian jury, you have less anti-Semitism, you don't have pogroms in the late 19th century, hence you don't have two and a half million Russian Jews going to America and everything well, so changes. Right. What you're alluding to, of course, is that... Um, law of historical, let me rephrase that, what you're alluding to is the law of counterfactual scholarship, which is the longer you spin out a scenario from its original point of divergence, the more wild and implausible and outlandish your, your conclusions can be, um, which is why, you know, there are some rules of thumb that historians and other scholars have come up with to try and keep um, one's counterfactual ruminations restrained uh, and not let them become what another scholar called exuberant. Um, so I don't recall offhand where Jeff ends his narrative, 
but to be sure, all the things you just spun out could be consequences that would have long-reaching uh, repercussions. Okay. Um, we know that there was a uh, proposal to set up a uh, Jewish state in Uganda that was uh, ultimately rejected by the Zionist Congress at that time. Um, the article, what if the Jewish state had been established in East Africa? Yeah, this is a very, very um, popular scenario. Not just what if the Jewish state had been established in what's today Uganda, but what if there had been a Jewish state established any place else, whether in Argentina, whether in Suriname, even in upstate New York, there was a, a novel written by Nava Zemel a few years back called Israel, Israel, uh, where the idea was, I believe it was Mordechai Manuel Noah had yes. this sort of uh, Ararat, was the sort of utopian community that could have mm -hmm. become a Jewish uh, homeland. And Nava Zemel extrapolates that if that had actually gotten off the ground, and what would a state look like in the 21st century? It's it's really uh, an inspire. It's an inspirational um, premise for fiction writers. But Adam Rovner, a good friend of mine who's at the University of Denver, um, in a very creative and I should add award-winning essay, created um, what I would call a kind of a hybrid between a "Let's Go Europe" and "Rough Guide" uh, sort of um, guidebook to what, from his alternate historical perspective, would be the state of New Judea had it existed or come into existence after 1904, when in his uh, scenario, after the Uganda plan gets voted down in the 1904 Zionist Congress, um, the assassination of Max Nordau by someone who's linked to Menachem Musishkin, who's uh, a fierce opponent of the plan, leads to a swelling of Jewish support for this Uganda plan. The British government supports it. And instead of uh, Zionists migrating to Palestine, they go to East Africa. And while there are endless creative flourishes that uh, Adam puts into his essay, the gist, of course, is that um, it doesn't become a paradise, a utopia, where Jews can once and for all live at peace and have sovereignty and autonomy. It's that, of course, as you would predict, there are clashes between the Jewish migrants and the native populations. Uh, and while those clashes don't end up creating something as, uh, you know, contemporarily um, horrible as the Arab-Israeli conflict, there still are conflicts between the budding Jewish state uh, and the Black African peoples that live in the region. So it happens to be the case that the subsequent uh, new Judean governments resolve them somewhat more efficiently. And as you might guess, there is an implicit indictment here in this essay, politically speaking, of the status quo in the Middle East. It's not that Adam Rovner is saying, you know, it's a terrible thing that Israel exists and we should have just moved to Uganda. But it is pointing out the realistic, the sober realistic claim that a Jewish state created anywhere in the world would have brought conflict with it. Um, and we can choose to acknowledge that or not. But this exercise in the imagination does have a powerful impact on how we view the present day world. OK, so would, would some say that this is an example of exuberance in in counterfactual or it's, again, it, it, it's it, it, it just weaves, you know, a story. Yeah, no, it's certainly a more literary version of, uh, of more in the, in, the, in the spirit of an alternate history as opposed uh, to a counterfactual history. Uh, and I should also point out that, you know, counterfactual thinking comes in many, many different forms. So when I referred earlier to Herodotus or Thucydides, um, you know, they were reflecting counterfactually in simple sentences or 
sequences of sentences, maybe the occasional paragraph. Livy, the Roman historian, was unique in the ancient world for having had a long digression where he asked the question, what if Alexander the Great had tried to invade Rome, the Roman Republic, would he have won or would he have been defeated? And that was sort of a long-form counterfactual exercise that was very atypical. Um, the modern world has seen far more what we can call extended or exuberant counterfactual reflections to the point where entire novels, uh, like Michael Chabon's The Yiddish Policeman's Union, that imagines a Jewish state taking place uh, in Alaska in the 1940s, you know, those are um, very typical of our present-day world. Um, but I think uh, at this point in, in time, um, those kinds of uh, lengthy um, explorations, they're the ones that tend to be more popular and get the attention of the general public. Um, Adam did run, win a, an award, an alternate history award called the Sidewise Award for that essay. Um, it's extremely creatively framed in the form of a guidebook. It's not a once upon a time, this happened and this happened and that happened. It's allowing the reader to take an active role in creating the alternate world. Um, okay, moving on to in, in, in an area of, of your expertise. Um, what if Adolf Hitler had been assassinated in 1939? This, this kind of reminds me of a Twilight Zone, a Rod Sterling Twilight Zone, where someone from the future goes into the past with the uh, mission to kill the infant Adolf Hitler. And uh, what ends up happening is is uh, the, the, the she runs and she runs and she takes the baby and they're chasing her and she realizes that the only way to to do this is to jump with the baby and kill herself at the same time she does that but the the other maid who sees that realizes that she can't come home without a baby so she steals a baby from uh, the marketplace brings it home and that stolen baby is Adolf Hitler so in other words that was you can't change history, you know. That, yeah, and that's and that's the whole nature versus nurture issue. Um, if you grow up as a baby Hitler um, in an environment where potentially you're being beaten by your uh, father, you suffer abuse, you're brought up in an anti-Semitic environment, it's nothing about the inherently demonic nature of that one individual that's pivotal. It's it's the environment, uh, and that issue, by the way, of um, contingency and individual free will versus structural determinants. That's a through line throughout all of the field of uh, counterfactual history. And I, I actually know that episode of The Twilight Zone. I think it's Catherine Heigl who plays the nanny. It was from the the, re, the reboot of The Twilight Zone. Okay. Uh, and in one of my older books, The World Hitler Never Made, I actually have a whole chapter devoted to the, the theme of what if Hitler had either never been born or had been assassinated earlier in life. Uh, or And so The World Without Hitler is a very famous counterfactual premise. And what you're suggesting right there and there, it's 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 extremely powerful. Um, I'm hardly the only person, although I do deal with it in the volume, who have, who, who's covered this, so it is a kind of greatest hit, uh, if you will. But in my own contribution, what I try and argue is that if Hitler had been assassinated uh, on November... We're in 1939 now, so the Nazi party is established. You know, the war is either happened already or started or is about to start. You've got, it, you've got all the players in place now. Right. So unlike, for example, if Hitler had been killed in an automobile accident, which he actually was in in 1930, if he had been killed before the Nazis seized power, it's very different from 1939 when the war has already been going on for two months, let alone if he had been assassinated, which he almost was in 1944 during the July 20th conspiracy when the war was practically over. You know, the context always matters a great deal. But to come to the gist of my argument, you know, Hitler almost was killed. Um, 
by Georg Elzer's bomb in the Bürgerbräu Keller uh, in 1939 only was because there was fog uh, hovering over the airfield in Munich that led him to have to take a train back to Berlin, which was going to take a lot longer. So he left early. And when the bomb exploded at 9.20 p.m., he was already gone. Um, multiple people were killed, but he evaded death. Um, my argument is that if the fog lifts earlier and he ends up taking the plane, um, or at least planning on taking the plane and not taking the train, he would have been speaking behind the, the podium when the bomb went off. Um, he would have been killed. And then, of course, what would have happened would have been a terrible uh, set of events. The first thing, of course, that I speculate would have happened is that um, the deportations of the Jews, which had already been taking place in parts of occupied Poland, would have actually accelerated within Germany itself. There would have been a massive pogrom dwarfing Kristallnacht from the year before, um, because the German people, having seen their leader murdered, would, of course, have been told by Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister, that it was all the fault of the Jews. There would have been, uh, you know, mass uh, violent um, attacks erupting all across the country against the Jews. There would have been uh, a huge cry for them to be expelled once and for all. Um, and uh, because the German war machine was already in the process of uh, pursuing deportations and plans for the um, consolidation of uh, Jews on a so-called Jewish reservation um, in the occupied part of Poland known as the general government near Nisko, that would have intensified. And then the awful... Um, months of November, December, January of 1939 to 40, it's entirely possible that uh, a pogrom of massive proportions might have cost the lives of over uh, or close to a million Jews. Um, the problem, of course, uh, is that while the assassination of Hitler would have been immediately tied to this pogrom, um, it wouldn't have stopped there because inside the Nazi regime, there would have been a power struggle that would have erupted immediately on the heels uh, of this event. And while we know, of course, that in real history, Hitler was bent on uh, not only defeating Poland, but moving on to invade France um, already in the fall of 1939, without Hitler on the scene, um, his own general staff, who, which was entirely opposed to an invasion of France, he, they didn't think Germany was up to the task, probably would have prevailed over uh, the more moderate Nazi leader, Hermann Goering, uh, and convinced him that there was no reason for Germany to invade uh, in the West. And as I spin out the scenario further, you've got this clash between uh, a genocide, uh, objectively speaking, of a million Jews in occupied Poland that ranks, of course, uh, just as high uh, up there as with the genocide of over a million Armenians in 1915 in World War I. The world would have been horrified by the news of these murders as it would have seeped out. And it would have put pressure on Hermann Goering to recalibrate Germany's uh, geopolitical ambitions. And to cut to the chase, I basically argue that his pragmatic streak, and he was not a good guy to say the least, certainly an anti-Semite, but he was more practically minded than Joseph Goebbels and Heinrich Himmler, who had a racial vision for solving the Jewish question once and for all, so to speak. Uh, it would have led to um, peace feelers uh, being tested between uh, Hermann Goering's uh, administration and the Western powers. Uh, of course, before this could have gone forward, uh, Goering would have had to purge the SS and Goebbels' fanatics in the propaganda ministry, um, take power entirely himself, which I speculate would have probably happened since he had the army under his control. Uh, and before long, you have uh, a peace treaty 
being forged between England and France, which didn't want any extended war with Germany and Europe anyway, um, where Poland sort of gets sold down the river, uh, which is not surprising. Um, but uh, peace ends up being established, but on the condition that the Jewish question ends up being solved by immigration. Um, so you do have a Holocaust of sorts, as it comes to be known in this world where um, a million Jews have been killed, but it's also a world that doesn't know that six million Jews would have been killed had Hitler survived. So um, it's one of these paradoxes where the killing of Hitler would be seen as a catastrophe for the Jews because they don't know what they were spared by his survival. So, you know, you can't help but read this kind of a scenario with our knowledge of what really happened, but putting yourself in the position of what people would have known or only been able to know back then. And maybe I'll spare, uh, you know, I'll keep it, keep your readers or, uh, sorry, your listeners or viewers in suspense about how the story ends up, but there are dramatic repercussions for the creation of the state of Israel uh, in this essay. And let's just say that it becomes very clear that nothing is unconnected in the okay. sphere of counterfactual history. Well, without giving away that ending, if I can be a little exuberant. So under this scenario, it, it sounds like there's, there's no real World War II. You don't have the conflict with the Soviet Union. So you don't have that part, that that's off. And then how, if we can be exuberant without giving away any of the uh, of the endings, what happens to, with Japan and the United States? Does Japan now see, wait a second, we don't have a German ally, which really wasn't an ally, but was an ally. No Pearl Harbor, no World War II for America or separate Pacific theater regardless. Right. No, these are these are all interconnected. I, I'll say I don't explore the Pacific theater in this chapter since because it really does get us far afield. But I think the larger takeaway is that rather than one massive global conflagration, what you'd have is the persistence of smaller scale regional conflicts in Europe uh, and, of course, in Asia, where Japan was well on its way to trying to create its own empire. Um, that's kind of a different timeline in terms of whether the U.S. would have gotten involved uh, for its own reasons, I think there's a case we made Japan would have still attacked Pearl Harbor because of the oil embargo that FDR had imposed upon the country. But how that would have affected European Jewish life, that probably would be uh, something of less uh, immediate import. There might have been two sort of parallel wars without them being joined together as they were in real history. Okay. Sticking a little bit to um, World War II, um, the Desert Fox, Rommel, is on the march. Egypt, he's getting close to uh, Palestine. Um, now we have the Battle of El Alamein, the famous battle. What if the Nazis, the German army, had won that battle? Yeah, well, it's what I would call a very clear nightmare scenario. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but most counterfactual and alternate histories come in two versions. One, the, the fantasy scenario, where we imagine everything could have been better, and the nightmare scenario where we realize that, wow, everything uh, could have been much worse and there but for the grace of God go all of us. Um, I think it's important for us to understand that the uh, Holocaust magnitude was uh, catastrophic for the Jewish people in Europe in and of itself. But we oftentimes, or at least many people don't realize that there could have just as easily been a Holocaust in North Africa and in mandatory Palestine. Um, it's in fact the case that there were Einsatzgruppen units in North Africa that the Germans had plans to march into Palestine. The Jewish population is over half a million at that point in history. Um, the Nazis certainly would have been very eager to nip in the bud any future uh, Jewish state that could have posed a threat to their 
vision of the Aryan race being supreme. Um, and it's bad enough for us as uh, people in the real world who know what happened to six out of nine million European Jews, but to contemplate that there could have been, uh, you know, Einsatzgruppen shootings in Sfat or in, you know, Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, uh, it's something that uh, we only did barely avert. And while, of course, it's very easy for um, certainly European Jews to bewail um, the role played by Great Britain and keeping the doors locked for European Jews who were trying to get to Palestine, it's only thanks to Montgomery's troops and the British uh, uh, divisions uh, in North Africa that the Nazis didn't make it to Palestine. So, you know, history is complex. Um, heroes and villains are very rarely completely black and white. And while the British were hurting Jewish interests in one way, they were saving our skins in another way. Um, any other examples, um, Professor Rosenfeld, that you would like to bring from from the book? And we just covered four or five. There's uh, 16 or so. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, there's a great uh, essay by Iris Bruce about Franz Kafka making Aliyah to uh, Palestine slash Israel and becoming a Nobel Prize winning fiction writer if he only hadn't died uh, of, I believe it was tuberculosis. Um, there's a great piece about the Second Temple not being destroyed, about the Jews of Spain not being expelled. Um, from my perspective, um, this is just the, uh, you know, what, what we call, say in German, the Vorspeise, the appetizer for, um, you know, the main course, which is to say um, 16 little morsels uh, whet our appetite for just becoming uh, habituated into thinking about Jewish history in counterfactual terms rather than only historical terms. Uh, and I will say that I've had some some wonderful exchanges with uh, rabbis in the U.S. over the last several years where, you know, somebody will contact me out of the blue and say, I'm thinking about writing a Dvar Torah, and I'm, I'm wondering about this, this premise of what ifs and how I should incorporate it. And I, I do think that um, the idea resonates, uh, you know, in all people. Um, I'd like to proselytize a little bit, uh, even though I know it's not part of our tradition, uh, to sort of recommend this mode of thinking simply because it takes what we think we know very, very well and it sort of uh, destabilizes it and allows us to think about history in new ways. Um, and I have to say also just from my many years of teaching, students absolutely love these kinds of what ifs. Um, they have to be done in a disciplined, informed way. Uh, I certainly would insist on that, but it is a way to make history come alive. It, is, is there a, a, um, a tendency to, to use or to apply counterfactual um, scholarship and thinking more in the military uh, sphere where you know people are analyzing military strategies and in teaching they're saying, well, you know, General Alexander should have done this or if they had put troops here on the Eastern Front instead of the Western. Is that where you have, what you mentioned before in, in more of the ancient history, is that what they're dealing with uh, when they deal with counterfactual? Uh, yeah, history? so for sure, military history was the place I think that counterfactual history was born. Okay. Um, and when you think about how ancient history was really the, the history of kings and pharaohs and other potentates and generals, um, it's not surprising that um, that's where the narratives first begin. It's also the case that military history is um, perhaps the most obvious place where things could have gone very differently. Just think about if the weather hadn't cleared up, 
when the Allied forces were trying to invade Normandy and D-Day, um, everything could have gone very differently. And Thucydides and Herodotus talk about this uh, already thousands of years ago. Um, it does raise the question of what other kinds of um, pivotal events can be uh, subject to counterfactual thought and analysis, revolutions, for sure, um, the American Revolution. Uh, failing is a very popular theme. The question, of course, becomes, would we have been better off if we had just stayed part of the British Empire and merged with Canada? I'll not go down that road just yet. Um, but in a moment, by the way, today, where we're be bemoaning all kinds of problems in the U.S., um, not, not the least of which is race relations, there, there was one famous novel by Harry Turtledove and Richard Dreyfus, the actor, called The Two Georges, that argues that had uh, the United States lost the Revolutionary War, uh, we would have been a British colony for much longer, and Britain probably would have unilaterally abolished slavery in the 1830s, as it did in real life, um, and we would have been spared the Civil War and horrible race relations, and, you know, it's not a coincidence that Harry Turtledove and Richard Dreyfus wrote that book in uh, the aftermath of the L.A. riots of 1992, uh, so when you have regret about the present, you fantasize about things having been better, um, but, you know, whether it's revolutions, whether it's assassinations, whether it's how we might uh, reassess the uh, historical reputation of key individuals if they had lived longer. Um, if Martin Luther King hadn't been assassinated and lived into the 1980s, would we have a less um, sort of martyrific view of him? If Martin Luther had died before he published On the Jews and Their Lies, would we feel more positively disposed towards him? Um, you know, all of these are sort of the kinds of scenarios that lend themselves well. But I would also say that... Um, grand social and cultural movements, say like the scientific revolution or the Renaissance, they also lend themselves to counterfactual analysis because uh, when you have a critical mass of great artists, for example, like Michelangelo and da Vinci and Titian, if one of them is never born, you could kind of assume that the Renaissance is still going to happen. Uh, if you subtract one of those people, the scientific revolution will still take place without Copernicus. Um, but uh, sometimes counterfactual history is to is used to show how things still would have happened the way they did if you subtract something and make it different. Whereas in other ways, counterfactual history is about showing how everything would have been entirely otherwise if you simply make one slight change. What we see um, is an example of this type of thinking, what, what one might see in the sports world where everything is what happens if, if Aaron Rodgers uh, goes down on the fourth play playing for the New York Jets, what in the world would happen? So now we're, we're you know, we're, we're seeing that, but you know, all the, you know, all the articles today and in, in, in the off season of, let's say a sport is what if this trade happens? What if that trade happens? Is it, It's the same thinking behind, behind well, Monday, morning, Monday morning quarterbacking by definition is all about counterfactual thought. Okay. And if, you know, you think about the long suffering fans in Chicago before the Cubs won the world series a couple years ago or Boston there, there were always, saying if only we hadn't traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees or, you know, um, the people who would um, talk about uh, any number of other pivotal trades or, you know, late season injuries. Um, so sports, yeah, I would think it's probably the, the, the most common area where that takes place in people's daily lives. Okay. And, and in conclusion, what, what's next in your research and your projects? You had mentioned something regarding counterfactual Jewish history specifically? Well, I would say that um, I'm constantly trying to tell my Jewish studies colleagues um, to 
contemplate incorporating counterfactual thinking in, in their own work. Um, but because I'm also a historian who wants to um, be so bold as to think that the entire modern Western historical profession would do well to realize what's been hiding in plain sight for years, which is that every major thinker, philosopher, theologian in the Western tradition has wondered what if, um, but we've just never admitted that, that, that would be an important uh, recognition to, to come uh, and realize. So the, um, the book that I've just finished the manuscript for, for it's called Predicting the Past, um, Counterfactual History from Antiquity to the Present. Um, it does make it, in fact, clear that during the Enlightenment, Voltaire was wondering how history could have been different. I mentioned Machiavelli, all the great uh, thinkers uh, in the, the Renaissance were reflecting on these uh, matters. There were medieval uh, theological debates um, that employed counterfactual reasoning. If you can sort of trace out 3,000 years of people wondering what if, my hope is that, that this practice won't be stigmatized. Uh, it won't be viewed as the bastard stepchild of the historical profession, at least the empirically grounded scientific historical profession. Uh, and that will once and for all realize that um, we ought to admit and do openly what we've all been doing covertly for many, many generations. And, and when is that uh, book going to be published? Uh, it's currently uh, in the hands of what I, who I hope will be some positively disposed readers. So once okay. I get the uh, reader reports back uh, from the press where it's being uh, entertained, uh, I hope to be able to, you know, speed it to, to publication. Okay. This has been you know, absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, again, urge all our viewers and listeners uh, to uh, purchase uh, and read What Ifs of Jewish History from Abraham uh, to Zionism. And um, so you won't be left with the question of what if I didn't buy this book? So let's say your, your entire life course could be different, right? Absolutely. Um, Professor Roosevelt, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ari. Right.